Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with next-generation labor organizer, Ai-jen Poo. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. I'm delighted to welcome all of you here to Unity Temple. I'm Reverend Alan Taylor, and I've long been a big fan of Krista Tippett's work. For she approaches religion and spirituality very much like us Unitarian Universalists. Here at Unity Temple, although the building has been here since 1909, our congregation dates back to 1871. Frank Lloyd Wright frequently tended worship with his mother, who was an active member when the original church structure burned down. Wright's design of our current worship home enshrines reflections of our theology that instead of having a steeple that points to God out there, there are stained glass windows in the ceiling, the light coming in representing the divine that is among us and emerges through genuine human relationship. For us, the central question is not, what do you believe? But how shall we live? We ask people to affirm not a creed, but principles by which we approach life's most challenging questions. We seek to live into the questions rather than simply answering them. And we learn from one another's life experience. It is our goal to be, to be welcoming of all people who share our desire to build community with the principles of affirming the worth and dignity of all people of promoting compassion, equity, and justice in all human relations, of accepting one another and encouraging growth in our congregational life, and of respecting the interdependent web of which we are all a part. This building provides a sanctuary and a crucible to foster a progressive religious community with the core values of connection, transformation, justice, and acceptance. Through worship, religious education, music, small groups, and faith in action, we cultivate a community where we can reflect on how we can be most faithful to our values as we seek to transform lives and help build the beloved community. Welcome. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Steve Bynum. Steve, where is Steve? <laughs> I don't want to talk about you without you being up here. Steve is senior producer for Reset with Jen White on WBEZ. For nearly two decades, he was senior producer for Worldview, WBEZ's global affairs news program and has won numerous awards for broadcast excellence. 
He lectures and moderates discussions on topics such as the role of faith in public life and the media's role in democracy, culture, and communities. Steve is a current fellow for Columbia University's Toe Center for Digital Journalism and a former international fellow at the University of Alberta's Chester Ronning Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life. He serves as a board of director locally for the Chicago Cultural Alliance, Cirque Esteem, a youth social circus, and United for Peace. Steve also serves on the advisory committee of the National Indo-American Museum here in Chicago. Now, while Steve is completing his master's degree thesis in public policy and administration at Northwestern University, he is also pursuing a master's degree in Eastern Orthodox theology. I'm struck that with all that he does, <laughs> he also serves as a subdeacon in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Church of North America. And lastly, Steve is a big fan of science fiction, especially <laughs> Doctor Who. He loves Duran Duran, and I want to know more about that. Why is that? And foreign films. So I welcome Steve Bynum. Thank you for being here. Other than my marriage and the birth of my children, the happiest day of my life was February 23rd, 1984, when Duran Duran performed at the Rosemont Horizon. <laughs> that is not hyperbole. First of all, on behalf of our gracious host, the Unity Temple Unitarian Universalist Congregation, who preaches love, not fear, and are open to many sources of inspiration, and I am certainly inspired to be here beyond being family and WBEZ, Chicago Public Media. Welcome to you all. I bring you greetings. But first, housekeeping. I humbly request that you silence your phones, which means that you have to go into your settings. And even if you have the ringer off, turn off the vibrator as well, because the vibrations can be distracting. And then also, I would like to request that for those of you who have VIP access, I think you're sitting down there. I don't know, how is that VIP if you're like in a dungeon? You know, I, but nevertheless, if you have a VIP wristband, as a reminder, please stay in your seats. When the program completes, await further instruction from WBEZ and the Temple staff for the meet and greet. But first, um, most importantly, I would like to do um, something that um, has fortunately caught on a great deal, and it's my privilege to do so. I want to start this program with a short statement and declare that we respectfully recognize the Potawatomi, Miami, and Peoria peoples who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. We acknowledge that we are on occupied land that was forcibly taken from its original owners. And we affirm that while we cannot change history, we can work for justice. This justice begins with recognition and acknowledgement. So there. 
We thank those whose living presence blesses and breathes life into this land, and we are also thankful to those departed whose physical and spiritual essence sanctifies the very soil on which this building sits. In a community of love, you're never far from each other, and there aren't many degrees of separation. Um, one of my former producers, Mr. Uh, Dave McGuire, uh, good old egg, uh, was also a former producer for Krista. And so um, because uh, the mission of the show that I once produced is so aligned with the mission of what she does, I, I think he was well prepared for that experience. So let me just say this, and I think we all know that in these times that it is easy to succumb to despair and fear and uncertainty and to act upon fear, and even in ways that might shock us. There are three words that overcome all fears, but not the three words that you may think. Those three words are, I am nothing. My spiritual father, Archbishop Lazar Pujalo, who sits on the side of a mountain in a monastery in British Columbia, Vancouver, taught me that the Eastern faith begins with those three words, I am nothing. If you can say those words, your feelings cannot be hurt because you don't have ego. If you can say those words, then you don't covet because you want nothing, because you are nothing. When you stare into the abyss, rather you see a mirror, and that mirror reflects back at you. And in the words that we say in the Eastern faith before we approach the chalice, I believe and I confess that thou art truly the Christ, the Son of the living God, who came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. You cannot approach the chalice until you acknowledge that there is no worse person walking the face of the earth than you. You cannot approach the chalice until you have the baptism of tears and confess your unworthiness. And through those tears, you are healed. In the Greek, Kyrie eleison, elios, which means oil. The Hebrew root, hesed, steadfast love, and so when you say, Lord, have mercy, you are saying, I affirm that through my tears and my steadfast love, I will anoint or be anointed for the sake of healing. And through the scars of life and the hardships, mercy is the salve where we overcome all darkness. I will say this to you. If you ask why, the response is do. If you ask how, the response is work. Liturgy, the Greek word is liturgia. The work of the people done on behalf of the people. You work. Love is work. Community is work. The essence of the Trinity as we understand it is community. Christ came and emptied himself, kinosis, self-emptied himself, gave a love offering of himself for the life of the world and for others. If you are in despair, then the question becomes, whom have you failed to serve?
If you are angry, to whom do you owe forgiveness? In order to know healing, you must weep, you must work, and you must allow your heart to be broken. The psalmist speaks that a contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart, these things God will not despise. The great rabbi scholar, Hillel the Elder, was teaching, and his student said to him, Rabbi, it is said that the Torah, the words of the Torah, must be placed on your heart. Why must they be placed on your heart? Why can they not be placed in your heart? And then the great teacher paused and he said that, well, the state that we are in, our human frailties, our hearts are closed. And so you place the words of the Torah on your heart so that when the heart breaks, the words can fall in. And so what I want to say to all of you is that allow yourself to be broken. Allow mercy to be at the heart of all that you do. Do the work that has to be done. Because when you do, and you work, and you weep, and you allow yourself to be broken, then you don't have the luxury, the time, or the privilege to be in despair because you're just too darn busy. <laughs> so it is my honor and joy to be a part of you, to be a part of your beloved community. And I share with you the greetings of peace and of sacrificial joy. And I am so thankful to Ms. Tippett for the work that she has done and continues to do. It is her love offering to you. She has dropped a pebble into the waters, troubled waters though they may be, and the ripples have gone out. And those ripples will come back in ways that you cannot begin to know because the work that I've given my life to must be done. It has to be done. It will be done. And in due course, in due course and due time, you will hear about that work. So thank you very much, Ms. Tippett. I mean. And so now it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce Ms. Krista Tippett. She is the founder, executive producer, creator, collaborator, innovator of the program On Being, broadcast on PRX. That show gave birth to the On Being Project, which I'm sure she will speak about. The show is broadcast on hundreds of radio stations distributed by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. And, but it has underachieved, unfortunately. It has uh, only been downloaded and played approaching a quarter of a billion times. <laughs> so you're going to have to up your game on that one. And so um, thank you for indulging me. And it is with my greatest of honors that I introduce Ms. Krista Tippett.
So we are in an extraordinary space, and that was an extraordinary beginning. Thank you for planting the evening. Um, yeah, I feel a little bit speechless already, and we haven't even started to. <laughs> um, yeah, I want to thank Steve Bynum and, and Tyler Green, who helped make this all happen, and Reverend Taylor for being our host here at Unity Temple. Uh, I'm so glad to be in Chicago. I um, we're, On Being is produced in Minneapolis, and when I'm in New York, people always assume the show is produced in New York, and when I'm in San Francisco, they think it's produced in San Francisco. And I spent three months last year, the beginning of the year in San Francisco, and I got so tired of their weather superiority complex. <laughs> <laughs> and I really like winter, and I'm really happy to be in wintry places this winter. <laughs> And Chicago is a special place. It's kind of a, it's again and again a center of gravity. I, I came to Ragdale, uh, the, the writer's retreat. It was, I always get the, in Lake Forest when I was finishing the Becoming Wise book, and I really didn't feel like I could finish it. Um, we've been working with this incredible project in Barrington, the, a year of courageous conversations. I think some of our friends might be here tonight. Um, and of course, uh, being present on Chicago Public Radio, WBEZ, is just incredibly important to us. And uh, it means a lot to, have, to be partnering with WBEZ tonight. And I've been following Ai-jen Poo's work for years and her presence in the world. And I'm really grateful to this community for bringing me together with her for the first time in the flesh. We have so many people in common, and I think we've actually been in the same room and we've been at the same conferences and never met before. Um, let me just say a little bit about housekeeping, too. Um, we're going to have a conversation up here for maybe 40 minutes, then we're gonna open this up for questions. Lily, did people have, um, were there questions on the seats? So about, um, I'll give you about 10 minutes notice and the questions will be collected. And then we'll, ha we'll open this up a bit for a conversation with the room and then we'll come back up here to finish this um, because we are taping this um, for broadcast on the show. Um, I think a great deal about what we pay attention to culturally and about what is less visible above what we call the radar. How that radar privileges political, social, and cultural tumult. And that tumult and its perils are real, but there's so much reality to the story of our time that we haven't learned to tell and see as robustly and passionately. My interest is in what Martin Luther King Jr. called the long arc of the moral universe. And I think that so much of what has the power to redeem and grow us up collectively is happening right now below, the, below that radar. Um, and that the ripple effects of the work Ai-jen Poo and her team and her community are doing, what they're shining a light on, in particular, is one of the stories people will see when they look back at our time a hundred years from now, if we manage to move through this wondrous and terrifying century and flourish rather than merely survive as a species and, and as a country. 
So here is a bit of official introduction, and then we're just going to launch into the conversation. Um, Ai-jen Poo is the co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, a nonprofit organization working to bring quality work, dignity, and fairness to the growing number of workers who care and clean in our homes, the majority of whom are immigrants and women of color. There's so much going on in this organization. I'll just give you a few, a taste. Um, you know, they have something called uh, the NDWA Labs, an innovation arm of the organization, which is launch, launching Alia, a, a groundbreaking technology platform that's providing benefits such as paid time off and life insurance to domestic workers who have previously been unable to access a safety net. Um, in 2011, iGen launched Caring Across Generations, uh, a new initiative that we'll talk about as well. Uh, among other adventures, she worked with participant media, uh, she and her team, to shine a spotlight on the over 2.5 million domestic workers in the United States with the release of the film Roma, which was this surprising hit to above the radar. Um, and she's also co-written an important book, which I'm going to turn to a few times tonight, The Age of Dignity. So let's start. Um, do this I first, get, yes. Do I get to fangirl for a second? <laughs> I'm just going to take some liberties here and say what an incredible honor it is to be able to have this conversation with you and how much I've learned from you mm. over the years, um, particularly about listening. <laughs> and listening for an organizer like me is the most important superpower to cultivate mm. um, because it is actually impossible to understand how to create change with people if you can't listen well. And I've learned so much about listening well and actively with humanity from you. So mm -hmm. thank you. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that means an incredible amount to me. Um, so this first question may not surprise you. <laughs> um, and this is something I haven't, I've, I've listened to many interviews you've given and read you across the years, but I haven't, I haven't read about this. Um, how would you think about um, the religious or spiritual background of your childhood, however you would define that now? It's hmm. a great question. Um, well, I didn't grow up with any kind of organized religion, and in fact, I had a huge amount of FOMO about it because a lot of the children that I grew up with went to church every Sunday, right. and I really wondered why we didn't. Um, and I think I asked my father about it once, and he said to me that people who believe in God are weak. Ah. Which, to be fair to him, I don't think he would say that today. Um, and I don't think that he meant it in any kind of harsh way, but more just that that was kind of, he's a scientist, and um, I think a lot of his, his feelings about religion were rooted in science, and his, science is his religion, I suppose. Um, and, and your parents had immigrated to the U.S. from Taiwan. That's right. In the 70s? In the early 1971. Yeah. Yep. And so I would say that I didn't have much contact with religion, but I did find a spiritual practice uh, through my activism, actually. Mm. Um, there was a, as a young organizer in New York City, 
I think there was some, um, there was a sense of dissonance that I felt uh, in the work that we were doing where we were fighting for inclusion and sometimes we felt like a little exclusive in mm -hmm. a way or we were fighting for dignity and justice and sometimes we didn't treat one another with that same level of humanity and dignity and um, and I think that dissonance never sat well with me. And I saw a book that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote um, called Creating True Peace. Yeah. And I picked it up and developed a, a, an interest in Buddhism and yoga from there. Mm. I also feel like your, your work now in caring across generations, you know, it feels to me like that, the, the ex an experience of that, an awareness of that, a passion about it, was also in the fabric of your childhood uh, with your grandparents. And, and that feels spiritual to me, expansively defined. Absolutely. I was really fortunate to be raised in a multi-generational household um, where my grandparents played a profound role in, in my teaching me very practical things like potty training me, which was very useful. <laughs> um, and, uh, Excellent. And, and, I mean, you lived with them, right? And for some formative years. Yes, and, and absolutely. And saw them every summer. And every then summer. They, then they came to the States. And, and then as soon as they were able to retire, they came and lived with us. And so I grew up watching my grandfather do Tai Chi in the driveway. And certainly my values um, really came from them very strongly. And my grandmother, uh, her notion of family was always so expansive and boundless to me. Mm. Everyone was an auntie and an uncle, and I don't think I actually understood till much later that they weren't my blood relatives, but everybody in the community felt like family, and she was very much the epicenter of caring um, for so many people, and I, I think I watched that and absorbed that as an ethic. Mm. So at a very, uh, you know, you, you have become esteemed at a young age um, for founding and leading the National Domestic Alliance, which you founded in 2000, co-founded in 2007. Um, here's how, when you received the MacArthur, became a MacArthur Fellow, which is, which we refer to as the Genius Award, um, they cited you for catalyzing a vibrant worker-led movement for improved working conditions and labor standards for domestic or private household workers. And then I really do love this way you stated it. In another interview, you said, we have been building a big, beautiful movement of nannies and house cleaners and caregivers. Yeah. <laughs> and what's, what's fascinating to me that the seeds of this were when you started volunteering at a domestic violence shelter in college and you were working on the hotline answering the phone all night. That's right. And being I, a listener. Being a listener and knowing, um, having the skills to be a listener because my grandmother taught me Mandarin growing up. Um, but answering the phone calls at night, I was so struck by how many of the calls were not actually about the abuse, but about surviving in everyday life, working incredibly hard and still not being able to pay the bills. That there was this relationship between the inability of working women to earn enough to make ends meet 
and their ability to live free from violence. Mm -hmm. And it was so profound. And I remember thinking, how could it be that people who have work and are working so incredibly hard still can't take care of themselves and their families? And how do we change that? Mm -hmm. Started to ask that question. And th this was actually a, this shelter was um, specifically for, in New York City for Asian immigrant women. That's right. Which is why the Mandarin came in handy. Mm -hmm. I feel like in, at this moment um, in our life together um, as human beings, so much unfolding that is about really essential work that came too late, that came that was long in coming, and um, and that and that somehow in the as we kind of t came from the last century to this one, we we some of us had a feeling that we were much farther along with much of that work than we actually were. Mm -hmm. that, that it's all, that so much is still unfolding and we're seeing, we're seeing that fact mm -hmm. that it's still, that there's so much to do. There is. And it feels to me like this, this place that you have engaged is, you know, it's, it's, um, it's right there um, at that axis. And also this matter of domestic workers Caregiving, as a profession, is it has it, it intersects with gender and race, and those are two of these places where we've just become so aware of all the unfinished business. That's right. But that's also what's made this, I think, a bit invisible. Yeah, if you think about it, it's um, this work of caring for our children as nannies or our aging parents as home care workers is some of the most profound and important work in our lives. We call it the work that makes everything else possible because, I mean, it makes it possible for all of us to go out and do what we do every day, knowing that some of the most precious aspects of our lives are in good hands. And, and yet, it's some of the most invisible and undervalued work, yeah. right? Millions of women do this as a profession, but it's not even considered a profession. It's referred to as help. Right. right? We don't think of it as work. We think needing work or being employers, but needing help, right. getting help. And it's absolutely connected to gender because this work has always been associated with work that women do. And um, often unpaid. Often unpaid. There's yeah. been an expectation that women will do this work, taken for granted culturally. And as a profession, it's off, always been associated with women of color, right? Our first uh, domestic workers in this country were, uh, uh, many of them were enslaved African women. Right. And that history has really shaped how we've treated this workforce in the laws. In the 1930s, when we put our labor laws in place, two groups of workers were excluded farm workers and domestic workers who were African-American at the time. And those exclusions are still in place, many of them. Which I feel is that I have only learned that through your work, and it is a shocking thing to learn. It and is. And that even with, the, with Title VII and the Civil Rights Act, which, which did away with a lot of discrimination or aspired to, there was also this exclusion the of those categories remain. of workers. In, this, in the experience of this workforce, you can really see the ways that 
our society and our culture is still very much structured by a hierarchy of human value, whether it's uh, race or gender, that we do value the lives and contributions of some people over others. And I think if I were to say one, describe the goal of our movement in one line, it would really be about affirming the inherent and equal dignity of every human being. Um, and, and that is how we sit at the intersection of so much, because it's not just one hierarchy that we're concerned with. It's that there shouldn't be any. That at our essence, we should all be whole and human and have dignified work and be able to care for our families. And, um, and if we can achieve that for this workforce, the ripple effects for everyone will be profound. Right. It will... It feels like it's defining of us, right? And that that move would be formative. It would, right? It right. would be. It would be. It would be transformational, but it would also be us. Be a way of defining what it means to be human beings and human societies. That's right. Um, there was during the Obama administration, they hosted a conference on aging, and the caregiving panel opened with. Um, the, the moderator of the panel said, you know, we often forget that aging is actually living. That <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. to age is to live, and to care is to be human. And I think that uh, our movement is meant to remind us of both of those two things, mm-hmm. too. And help us live more deeply into them. That's right. Um, so... All through the 20th century, even at other milestones where other workers and other kinds of labor was recognized, um, these, this category of workers were continue, uh, repeatedly excluded. And then finally in 2010, um, after seven years of you and your organization pushing this, um, New York enacted the first Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights in the history of this country. That's right winning rights and protections for 200,000 domestic workers in the state of New York. (laughs) And I think since then, other states have joined. Since then, eight additional states Mm -hmm. and the city of Seattle and the city of Philadelphia, which in December signed into law the very first bill to create paid time off for domestic workers. 16,000 domestic workers in Philadelphia just won paid time off. And I, I think it's something like 2 million workers, humans, who are now affected by all of those laws that have changed. At least, I, I think it, um, if you count home care workers, it's many more. Okay. The thing about this workforce that people don't realize, and we often think about it as kind of at the margins or, sh- or kind of in the shadows of our economy, but because of the huge and growing aging population in this country with baby boomers turning 70 at a rate of 10,000 people per day (laughs) and living longer than ever before because of advances in healthcare, 
We need more care as a country than ever before, and this professional workforce is going to be a huge part of the solution. So it's actually the fastest growing occupation in the entire US economy. Right. And some economists predict that between care jobs as childcare jobs and elder care jobs combined, that this workforce will be the largest single occupation in our whole workforce soon. So these are, it's important that we get paid time off. Well, it is, but you know, I want to, you know, what also strikes me when I read about what's been accomplished, which is extraordinary, but it's, it's also so rudimentary, right? Um, workers aren't, I, this was about the New York Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, but I assume this is true of, 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 of the others, that it entitles workers to overtime pay one day of rest per week, protection from discrimination, three days paid leave per year. You know, and it strikes me that um, one of the big new catchphrases in our society is self-care. Mm -hmm. And yet, <laughs> we, 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 are in, we, are, we are exploring and, and taking self-care seriously, but not for our professional carers. It is among, I think, the greatest ironies in our culture that the people that we're counting on to take care of us can't take care of themselves and their own families doing this work. Yeah. And the, I would say the opportunity here is to transform that, really, for the 21st century. Imagine, I mean, manufacturing jobs used to be poverty wage, dangerous jobs that a lot of immigrant women did. And we transformed that work into dignified work that you could take pride in and one generation could do better than the next. And that is the opportunity here with this job and with so many other low-wage service jobs that really define our economy today. We can make them good jobs right. that support all of us. And I think something that you've observed that, that was really useful for me in thinking about is that um, this, though, is a, it's, a, it's a labor force and a field of labor that is hidden behind the closed door of private homes. Yes. So you, you had this analogy, you can go into any neighborhood and not know which homes are workplaces. But, but even deeper than that, um, as you said, we we talk about this not as work, not as labor, but as help. And so, um, the many Americans who are actually acting as employers in their homes don't even think of it that way. That's right. It's a really unique workplace in that way, um, and it's such an intimate relationship. It's very emotional, um, and and that is a piece that we think about a lot. You know, because in some ways you are part of the family and you are also a professional. This is your job. It's your job to be there and it's both. And that is so, in some ways, unique in this workforce um, and complicated. And, and, it, and it does drive to, to something else you've said that, you know, we live in an era of moral choices. And to me, to think about, um, how this really brings into relief um, just, you know, as astonishingly fundamental alignment, right, of, mm -hmm. of values with practice mm. and aspirations with practice. 
um, you know, this, this thing that, with the insanity that, as you said, the things that, um, that these employees, workers are entrusted with are the things we care about most, our, our, our homes, our loved ones, our children. That's right. Um, and yet somehow as a society we have, uh, we haven't been at all reflective um, about aligning that with what we pay for those services. I mean, it's kind of, it feels kind of insane when you actually, what do we pay anyone for that's more important than caring for our children or caring for our parents? Or That's right. It, I mean, the average annual income for a home care worker is $15,000 per year. And I can't think of any community that I've ever lived in where you can survive on 15000 a year. It's really quite extraordinary. Um, so that is definitely true. And yet, what I see every day is women who go to work and take such pride in the work that they do, um, where they really believe that they, that they are offering such a unique and profound value to the people that they care for. It's this fascinating thing. In some ways, I learned so much about activism from this population because if you think about it, oftentimes domestic workers, they live in low-income communities and um, low-income housing maybe, and, and then they have to get on public education and they, they live at one end of the economy. And then they get on public transportation and go to work often in a neighborhood on the other end of the economy. Right. And, um, and, and they're there and see employers come home with a pair of shoes that are maybe more than they make in a week, and yet their job is to care mm -hmm. and support and love, and, and they do so. And this boundless uh, ability to have compassion and also being able to see clearly how profound inequality is and how much it structures our society. So being crystal clear about injustice and inequality, yeah. but still never losing the thread of caring and compassion, you can't actually do your job as a caregiver if you dehumanize the person that, you're, that is in your charge. And, um, and so I learned so much from that, being able to hold both Right, living inside of and, and being very clear about inequality, but also never losing the thread of that compassion and human connection. And I think that that is so much of what's needed in this moment. All of us mm -hmm. need to understand that we have a profound set of challenges and inequities that we have to deal with and transform, but we have to do it with a boundless sense of compassion and, and humanity. Yeah, it's really like these, and they, are they mostly women, most of the domestic oh, yeah. work? Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, um, it's like they're, they're really on the front line, both of, of, um, of experiencing the, the dark side of, of injustice and our contradictions, and yet, being caring right there. Yeah. And not just because they're being paid to do it. Right. No, there's so much 
There's the, the life force that is caregiving is, is really profound. And if you think about it, many of these women are caring all day long uh, for work, yeah. and then they go home and take care of their own families, too. Yeah. I want to read a, a place in your book where you describe just kind of the contradiction, the complexity of this. Um, Undeniably, this work is rooted in relationships and emotions. One way of understanding this is that the basic values that define all healthy relationships between people, respect, humanity, accountability, dignity, empathy, and compassion, also apply here. Nothing about the relational aspects of caregiving makes it any less of a real job. Caregiving is most definitely work, physically strenuous, rigorous work that requires discernment and flexibility. As with all forms of labor, you put a hard day's work and you expect to be appreciated and compensated. You strive to do better and learn more and you expect to advance over the course of a full career. You take pride in your work and expect to be able to support your family. But we're, we're failing these these. Uh, employees, these laborers in our midst, these neighbors and fellow humans. Yeah. Well, I've also seen incredible acts of solidarity and courage on the part of families that support this workforce. There's a whole organization that's formed called Hand in Hand, mm -hmm. which is of people who hire and rely upon caregivers and domestic workers who've decided that they wanted to advocate for domestic workers' rights and for good jobs and living wages. And that kind of energy, I feel like, is just multiplying in this period. I think. All of us are waking up to the fact that we are interdependent and that we have to start to make some pretty significant changes in the way that we value our relationships, especially our caregiving relationships, if we're to make it through. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot that's shifting in this story. moment. I love that story. I mean, that would be, to me, one of these stories of our time that is untold or, or not widely told. I mean, I... Yeah, where is that happening? This it's happening all over the country, but they were instrumental in passing the domestic workers' bills of rights in all the states, but especially in New York. There were children who were raised by domestic workers who testified at hearings, working moms who said that they wouldn't have the work that they had mm -hmm. if it weren't for the nannies who came and took care of their kids. Um, single moms who said that they uh, rely on the domestic worker as if they are a life partner. I mean, that the way that we were able to tell the story about the value of this work, um, it wouldn't have been complete without those voices. Mm. You know, in this book, you um, so so caring across generations is the newest initiative mm -hmm. that if it, one of the things that was so interesting to me is that the cam this campaign actually started because house cleaners and nannies in your network were starting to be asked to care for elders and they stepped up and said we want to do this and be trained to do this so this kind of this this expansion um, came from them Absolutely. and emerged internally. It was such a profound example of how deeply embedded 
this workforce is in our families, that as things were changing and as needs arose, they were the first responders. Right, right. <laughs> and really responding to this huge need for elder care that's unfolding from families that they serve to that they work for who have a loved one who is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And the whole family is really grappling with what to do and how to reorganize. They're a part of that solution. And so we created for someone with dementia or certain kinds of disabilities that come with age, right? They didn't want to be unqualified to do that. Exactly. So that's right. So they asked for training and it was such a such a pattern that we decided to kind of take a step back and understand what was going on. And that's when we realized the age wave was catalyzing a huge shift in American families and really exploding the need for care and that that could be an opportunity for all of us to come together to make good care much more affordable and accessible and to really transform this work into good work, good jobs that you can really sustain on. And that idea of moving from kind of a zero sum to an abundant solution that really serves and reimagines how these systems work for families and workers alike mm-hmm. is was the spirit behind caring across generations. Right. I feel like you're really trying to completely reframe it and then pragmatically reframe it as not a problem to be solved but what does this allow us to grow into? That's right. I do believe that. I think that this is a once in several generations opportunity to transform and update how we care for one another in this country. Um, and so in the book, one thing I really love is that you have pictures that mm-hmm. kind of open um, many of the chapters. And the first, I believe this is the first one in the book, in the first chapter, is um, with your, um, this is your, your grandmother. That's my right? grandmother, yeah. Yeah, and you say, uh, Mrs. Sun, how you refer to her, is, is um, an immigrant from China living with, in Los Angeles County with her two adult sons and husband. She works as a caregiver for my grandmother and is an invaluable presence in my family. We are a team, and my grandmother is at the heart of it all, living life fully on her terms at 87. That's right. I believe in the future it's going to be care squads. Care squads? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where it's going to be you and me and um, sisters, siblings, family members, neighbors, friends, professionals, all of us together, um, making sure that the people that we love can live with dignity regardless of their ability or their age. And Ai-chen, I, it seems to me that the way, you know, labor organizing feels to me in many ways like a term from the early 20th century. And that, you know, as you said, the context was often manufacturing, right? Mm-hmm. And the context has changed. But you're kind of giving this freshness to the, and you're, it's kind of a very 21st century way that you go about labor organizing. And it does actually seem to me that you approach labor organizing also as a form primarily of care. Absolutely. I think that at the heart of what we're doing is nurturing and caring for humanity 
and dignity. I'm obsessed with the word dignity, you can tell from my book. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's about the dignity of work. It's about the dignity of human life. Um, there's this wonderful book, um, uh, Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, mm. and he talks about how important it is for people to be the author of their own story. Uh, to the end, and so much of what caregivers do is really support that, um, whether it's for people with disabilities or for the growing older population, and it's about how we take responsibility, um, whether it's in our interpersonal relationships or in our movements, for enhancing human dignity um, and the dignity that we all actually do deserve. And, yeah. <laughs> and I think, though, that can, those words can be spoken as a principle, almost as an abstraction. But the way you and the people around you put them into action, it has so much heart, right? It's, um, I mean, you've compared great organizing campaigns to great love affairs. And that, I don't think that is the image people have of labor organizing. So tell us how you, tell us really? how, how that works. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense when I, when I look at you, but it's, you've developed this, right? I, I believe that the most powerful force for change in the world is love. And there is... I'm in the right place. You are a good crowd. Um, and there is a special... I have the special joy and honor of being in a movement of people who every day, all day, are caring and are really driven by this mothering or this power of love and care in their daily lives, and they're really good at it. They're really good at caring. And we just lean into that and follow that ethic. I mean, it's the power of a mother's love in some senses that, um, that powers our movement. And I think it's our superpower, for sure. Mm -hmm. And like a love affair, it doesn't, at some point, it, it, it captivates you, right? It does. It, it, it's not drudgery to turn your attention to this. Not at all. It's like, um, the reason why I compare it is it's this container, our movement and our campaigns are like these containers for transformation. Um, the way that great love affairs are, right? You like are so busy and you have no more space in your life and then all of a sudden you fall in love and you have time to go to the movies and make dinner <laughs> and everything looks a little different and you have a different point of view, a different perspective and what you imagine to be possible for yourself and your life kind of opens up in a way. Okay. That's, that's what happens in the course of great organizing and great campaigns. And at the heart of what we do is about those relationships, really opening up what those relationships can do to transform us. You did say at the beginning that you um, 
when you first got into organizing, and, and I'm just kind of, maybe this isn't true, but I feel like you were getting into more of the 20th century mode of organizing. And you were, you were missing this, I don't know, let's say the love piece. Um, do you feel like the nature of movement building is changing? Do you feel like that's also something you're part of writ large? I, I do think it is changing. Um, the way, and I think by necessity, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm-hmm. I th- the way I think about it is that there's almost, there's almost two truths. There's what's factually true, and then there's what's emotionally true. And they're not the same, but both really shape our choices and our reality. And I mean, I think we all felt this coming out of the last big presidential election. And, and I think that when most of us who've done organizing or activism, we exist in the realm of what's factually true. And we commission research, we look at data, we make really strong arguments. And, and so while we have always talked about changing hearts and minds, mostly what we know how to do is change minds. Mm. And I think that now, in a really deeply profound way, we're all understanding that perhaps the most important project is changing hearts. And that in order to do so, you have to be unafraid of the irrational. (laughs) And you have to- Because we are all strange and irrational. Completely. Yeah. And, And that there is so much richness in our emotional lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are so profoundly driven by what happens there. We got to kind of get in there. And that's why I'm fascinated by religion mm-hmm. um, and, and also by storytelling. I think that the power of great storytelling is really about getting in there into our desire for heroes and, um, and a moral to the story, <laughs> right. you know. Right. Um, so I, I think that 21st century organizing the future is about changing hearts and minds mm-hmm. and, um, and really tapping into the power of how we emotionally make meaning um, to uh, create a more loving and caring future. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, I want to say, and I know you would make this distinction too, I mean, the, the beloved community was mentioned at the beginning of the season, right? So the civil rights movement actually did have that aspect, but I feel like that wasn't necessarily carried forward. And that, I feel, is what you are coming back to in a whole different generation, that insistence on beloved community. Absolutely. and our, the profound ways in which we are so interdependent Mm -hmm. and interconnected, even Mm -hmm. when we're not proximate. Right. And as we've been discussing, the the very nature of the work and the workers that you're engaged with forces that merger, right? It forces seeing that connection. We, it's it's in the very DNA (laughs) of everything we do. Yeah. Okay, it would need... never be oppositional in our context because the workers are so much a part of these families and these communities that um, there has to be another way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, okay, so I think we should collect the questions. Or, oh, write your questions now. <laughs> and then we'll collect them in a few minutes. Um, some of the interesting things that I, um, I mean, it, it, it feels also like so much of this sphere you're in has gender dynamics, and as we said, what has always, always, always been considered women's work and not paid work, that's, that's part of what flowed into this, not being valued mm -hmm. the way we value other kinds of work. Um, but there are some interesting things shifting in that, too, that men are becoming caregivers, oh, and yeah. millennial men are different from their fathers and grandfathers? Absolutely. 40% of all family caregivers for the elderly are men. And this is actually such a profound example to me of how sexism harms men because our assumption that women are caregivers just means that all of those millions, tens of millions of men who are family caregivers and who are doing this work become invisible. Right. Um, you, um, there is, this is someplace else. Um, oh, this beautiful quote from Rosalind Carter. I love you know, this I'm talking quote. about this. She's so my favorite. There are only four kinds of people in the world those who have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who need caregiving. True? <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. It's a basic reality yeah. that we're just learning, and you are one of the people helping teach us to take in. Yes, it is. I really do believe that care connects us all. It's a beautiful thing, and it's such a joy for me because it's so rare um, to work on an issue that affects every single person, right? We, right. we always start our, our meetings with asking people to turn to the person sitting next to them and share a story about someone who's cared for them and the value of that relationship in their life. And Every time, without fail, the room starts buzzing and people don't want to stop talking. Right. <laughs> and it just immediately connects us all in the room, and it's so powerful. Um, you do have this... I mean, I, I feel like you actually are working on the assumption that this crisis, this problem which is being absolutely pushed to a crisis point with the fact that baby boomers are such a huge generation mm -hmm. and men are li living so long, right? I mean, it's a great problem to have. Mm -hmm. um, that this, actually, this crisis calls us to rise into actually who, who we already are and who we want to be and to, into more deeply into what it means to be human. Absolutely. I really do believe that. <laughs> I really do. And, and not just that, but if you think about 
this country. And my friend Heather McGee often describes the United States as the most ambitious experiment in democracy in the world. Because if you think about it, we have, we're on lands that we occupied, that were someone else's homeland. And so we had the First Nations, and then we had migrants, and then we had people who were brought here as part of the transatlantic slave trade, and then we had generation upon generation of people from every country, every religion, every culture in waves, and then you tell us we're one. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty ambitious proposition. Right. Right? Right. And to think that we can still, in that context, find these core human threats of caring mm -hmm. and of investing in how we care for each other um, and how we care for our families to really be a place where we can come together and, and redefine what it means to be American in the mm -hmm. 21st century feels like we need, it feels like we need that. Yeah. These core human threats that are literally life-giving. Life-giving, yes. Um, so, I mean, you know, somewhere you wrote, a caring America is entirely in reach. And I have to say that I read that, you know, on a bad news day, and most days are bad news days right now. And that, that feels like a stretch. Fair, fair enough. But, <laughs> fair enough. But although, although sitting here with you, it, it feels closer. But, but when you talk about part of what you're doing is unleashing the caring majority, that feels real to me. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is what we're doing. We're building the caring majority in America. We believe that the vast majority of people in this country are caring and are deeply committed to caring for their communities and their families. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge amount of power to build off of. Yeah. Even just looking at the numbers, 100 million of us today are directly affected by the need for care on a very practical level. Right? That is an unstoppable force for change, mm -hmm. 100 million people here. Yeah. Unstoppable. When you do that exercise, um, so that would be when you gather, when your organization is speaking or gathering groups or doing workshops, how do you set up that exercise about telling a story about someone who cared for you? Oh, it's really simple. At the top of every meeting, we take three minutes and we ask people to turn to just the person sitting next to them, and it's usually a stranger, and share a story. And even when it's people that have known each other, they've never talked about, even though we work on these issues oftentimes, they've never talked about their personal connection, the, the incredible value that their mother or their aunt or their grandmother had in terms of caring for them or somebody that they care for, and it's always incredibly rich what the stories are that emerge. Um, and it completely changes how we enter the conversation about solutions. You feel really connected and powerful. So you would come at a policy conversation completely differently starting there. And I'm also assuming that that, if you started there at that kind of human level with that kind of story, it would just kind of disarm and defuse um, a lot of the kinds of differences that people come into 
civic spaces with these days? It would just kind of make them, it would make them seem less important, at least. Absolutely, that's right. I mean, it's a totally different entry point. It brings us into alliance together in a really different way, mm -hmm. in a non-traditional way, based off of the people who, who cared for us. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, one of the most powerful things I think we can do in this moment is be intentional about where we put our attention and I think it's so true that we are dealing with unprecedented attacks and so much bad news, horrible news. And there's also so much beauty happening yeah. in the world right now. And so many people who have shown up. I mean, I work on immigration issues, family separation in particular, and the number of good-hearted people who have stepped forward to collect donations, to sponsor families, to show up in ways that are quite uncomfortable for them, mm -hmm. um, is so profound. And I've been an activist for more than 25 years, and I've never seen the level of engagement um, and civic participation and energy and just a hunger to connect and to be a part of the solution than I see now. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to put maybe 45 degrees more attention there. That's the caring majority. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I just want we're gonna do questions in just a minute. There's um, another favorite quote of yours, which just feels like it's so, I see I, that you embody this from Alice Walker. It's some mm. lines of Alice Walker. This could be our revolution, to love what is plentiful as much as what is scarce. And what are you thinking of when you talk about that, what is, what, which is plentiful? I think about the love, the capacity for human connection, for care, for love, for generosity of spirit, um, no matter how much or what or you have or don't have, that there's, that we have right now within each of us every single thing we need to be a part of creating a beautiful future. And we have been living in a time of such scarcity and austerity and zero sum. Everything about our politics is zero sum. And I just refuse to believe that is not what we were meant for as human beings. As human beings, our inclination is to be connected and to, to care. And, um, and I think that though the the era of zero sum mm -hmm. is coming to an end and what is our future is is one of abundance okay let's open this up hi everybody it's tyler uh we first question uh, we pay our domestic workers in cash under the table ostensibly to help them avoid taxes and keep more of the money pros and cons Wow, so practical. <laughs> By the way, question surrogate asker, someone ask that out here. Um, let's see. There are many reasons why. Part of the reason why so much of the, the 
interaction in this industry happens in the shadows and under the table, so to speak, is because of the devaluing that has happened and because of the way that we have treated this as less than real work. And we are in a transition phase now where we are moving from this whole economy existing in the shadows to trying to figure out how it becomes more formalized in the marketplace. And in that transition, there's a lot of confusion and complexity, mm -hmm. especially when so much of this workforce is immigrant and undocumented. This is the part of the economy with the largest concentration of undocumented immigrants of any, of any workforce in our economy, which creates complications in terms of employment. So, um, so I would say that, that we are in a kind of a liminal phase and that you should work it out with your housekeeper. I think we're all in that liminal phase together. <laughs> exactly. Okay, next question. Have you thought about the role shame plays in the relationship between employer and employee? Women are given messages that they need um, to do it all. How can we turn this into something more expansive? Mm. Yes, shame. <sighs> it's really deep. And it's a very deep part of what structures the dynamic in this industry. And, and I will say that this is where, um, this is where there's a, a huge opportunity for transformation. Because um, in the past, I think that um, that shame or that expectation, the impossible expectation that women will be able to do everything all the time, um, has meant that this workforce of mostly women of color, women of, in, of even more marginalized status have borne the brunt of that, Yeah. right? And the opportunity now, I think, is for us to have open conversations about how completely untenable the expectations have been untenable, unsustainable, impractical, and it's simply not going to serve us in the 21st century. And for women who are employers and women who are doing this work as professionals to be the leading edge of how we transform the expectations of family members, to be much more equitable and humane. And it only happens if we join together. Otherwise, we might reinforce some of the hierarchies that exist, right? Um, but I see that happening now. And, um, and I will say that many of our protests and marches and meetings and events, workers bring their employers. And employers bring their employees. And we're doing more and more stuff together because we're realizing that the only way we break out of this dynamic of shaming and blaming and having these completely inhumane expectations of one another is together. Hmm. I mean, even when you said you should work that out with your housekeeper, just I think having that conversation would be a, a, a new step forward for Absolutely. a lot of people. That we don't all just awkwardly navigate around Right, or even care in general is seen as the purview of the woman to just kind of manage on her own. And I think the more we 
open up the conversation as a collective conversation, mm -hmm. the better. Yeah. Next question. Are there good models for care, dignity, policies, and practices in other countries? Mm. Yes. Um, there is a caregiving time bank in Japan that I'm a big fan of, where you can um, provide care for your neighbor and bank that time, and then somebody on the other side of the country can collect that time bank and um, benefit from it. There's a, I don't know how many of you know how time banks work, but the, they've created a way for people to take care of each other across distances through using time banking mechanisms. In Germany, they have a housing program where um, college students can live with older people who need care um, and they get housing out of it, and they also provide supportive services for the older people in that home. Um, and, and they have a real intergenerational ethic around that, which I think is really valuable. Um, but I will say that there isn't an, an example of a country where the caregiving workforce is really valued the way that it should be. And to me, that's an opportunity for us to be a global leader and to lead the way in not just how we support families, but how we make these jobs really good jobs. Um, so I'll say that. Okay, last question. Your childhood, as you described it, was full of a large community of non-blood relations. That kind of community is alien to many people today. Do you think that your work, which makes people more aware of the value and importance of domestic work, will encourage people to move back in the direction of deeper community caring? Mm, I hope so. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of it. I was, um, for my book, I was tracking that in the construction industry, the, the biggest trend in home redesign was the construction of what they were calling the mother-in-law suite. But basically adding multi-generational units onto your homes. And it's part of the care squad of the future concept, where I do think that we can and should be thinking more multi-generationally and more expansively about family and community and how we design for a future where we are going to need a lot more care mm -hmm. and um, we're going to need to be much more expansive about how we think about and build community. And there's a whole bunch of brilliant designers who I'm hoping will take that on so that we can really design for the future we deserve. Um, if you think about it, what we've done with the age wave is people, because of advances in healthcare, we've added another 20 years onto our life expectancy from the time that our safety net was originally put into place. So you're adding in a whole other generation onto life. But none of our systems or our infrastructure is really designed for that. And right. so I think we have to just really reimagine everything about community, about um, cities, right? About so much to really help us have um, a new way of life mm. that is uh, supportive. And your, your grandfather died in a nursing home, right? And I think that was, it seems like that was. And that, that fuels your passion around this as well. It does. To me, I mean, not all nursing homes are bad. I often right. get, right. Um, uh, and, and mostly 
our culture has really been biased towards nursing homes um, and really segregating older people and people with disabilities. And I believe that the healthiest future is one where we're all integrated uh, and where we're all living in community and uh, across generations and abilities. And there's so much richness there that we miss if everybody's in a nursing home. Yeah. And also institutional care is so much more costly than home-based care. And I mean, there's so many reasons, right? Quality of life. Mm -hmm. My grandfather um, had a horrible experience in a nursing home and I'll never forget it. And I know not all nursing homes are bad. And I just think each of us deserves the choice mm -hmm. um, to live where we feel like we can be the authors of our own story for the longest. I do. I mean, it's kind of back to the future, what you yeah. describe. <laughs> um, because we lost intergenerational community and exactly. extended families and neighborhoods. And I do, I do experience people new generations, but also people in my generation who this that, that we've lived for a while where it was where it was where it made sense to send your children thousands of miles away to college, mm -hmm. which in other cultures doesn't make sense at all, right? Even in never did. Um, but something else I want to ask you about, um, so yeah, so I feel a lot of people, many people aren't growing up the way you did anymore mm -hmm. with, with grandparents right there mm -hmm. and inter integrally uh, involved in your childhood. But I experience um, among young people, uh, um, many of whom it would be hard pressed to tell you how they are spiritual, but expressing this hunger and desire for spiritual elders. Mm. There's, there's this, there, it's like this thing that we lost, we, we actually needed, we needed. Yes. And that, that knowledge of the need is surfacing. Yes, I do believe that to be true. And technology has enabled young people to be more connected to their elders, even thousands of miles away. And there's something really interesting and wonderful about that, too. Mm -hmm. um, and this generation, for example, of millennials is more connected to their grandparents and their elders than any other generation previous as a result. So I is that so that's you you experience that, too. Is that like documented that? Uh, or the, is it just yes, it is absolutely. Isn't that yeah. amazing? There's a reason why millennials always say that they, their grandparents ruined Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you um, have a new podcast. I do. Did you just launch it? Yes. Okay. A week ago or something. So the and you're doing it with the wonderful mashup American ladies. Yes. Um, when in the description of the podcast, um, it says how a podcast about how women stay powerful and joyful amidst the chaos of life in America today. Yes. Um, so tell us how you stay powerful and joyful. Amidst the chaos of life today, and I'm so, um, I so love that conjunction of powerful and joyful. Yes. I will say I'm obsessed with power. 
<laughs> as most organizers are. Yeah. And I think uh, because I believe in the Dr. King sense of it, um, the combination of love and power to transform our world. Um, and so the, the podcast is called Sunstorm, and, um, and it's based off of the weather pattern called the sunstorm, where you can have really torrential storm, rain, sometimes even hail, but somehow, miraculously, the sun is still shining. Do you know what I'm talking about, that dynamic? And, um, and that is my colleague and I who host the show, Alicia Garza, who's a co-founder of Black Lives Matter, and I, we, after the 2016 election, we saw all of these threats and attacks on our basic human rights and progress, hard-won progress over so many generations. And we saw just incredible solidarity and activism and energy and an appetite to be a part of the solution. And it felt to us like a political sunstorm, like both, that we were both dealing with unprecedented dangers and threats and unprecedented signs of hope for a more democratic and, um, and inclusive future. And, and that women, in particular, were the leading edge, that yeah. they were really the sun shining through, first responders in our crisis. And so um, the idea is to really shine a light on all the ways that women are already showing up powerfully um, and, and helping them continue to shine. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we had a guest recently, Aminatu, who is the co-host of Call Your Girlfriend, and she developed a theory called the Shine Theory. That's another podcast for all the grandparents out there who are still on Facebook, but maybe not podcasting. <laughs> um, but Shine Theory is a big part of the spirit of this show, which is basically that um, instead of the zero-sum past, that our future is really about when and when you shine, so do I. When you shine, it puts more light on all of us mm. and on me in particular. And um, that women are showing up in that way, and and we want to keep nurturing that. Mm. Well, you know, science is also now seeing that acts of kindness. I mean, you could say care is actually contagious, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's another way to look at that. Care. That actually does. Does does manifest in the physical world. I agree. Yeah, care is like laughter in that way. Mm. It is very contagious, especially mm. the big belly laughs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and something else that I find defining of your generation, and that I, it's like it's woven, is friendship, and the power of friendship, and the power of friendship between women. But I think not just women, but you know, when you and Alicia introduce each other in the first episode, when you introduce her you say, you know, yes, she's one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, but you, the, the first thing you say about her is she's one of the best friends you could hope for. I just did this interview with a scholar at Yale at the Human Nature Lab called mm. Nicholas Christakis, mm. and one of the things he looks at is friendship as a force in human history and society. And, you know, you could say it's a form of care, but it goes invisible. We don't ever pause to look at how it is actually changing the world and moving things forward. And it's there in movements, right? And in it organizing. Really is. 
Um, but I, I, I really I experience that kind of alive in your work. Um, and I wonder if you even think, think are you aware of that? It, it's, it's kind of a glue, right? It's an energy force. I mean, I think having this podcast has made me a lot more aware of it because when you talk to women, they talk about and what enables them to shine through the storms mm -hmm. is so much about friendship. It's this unaccounted for force for change that, uh, yeah. that is so powerful. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, just as we, as we finish, you, you've said, um, there's a saying from the domestic workers movement, um, this feels like an important thing to reflect on in our fractured uh, country right now. In a campaign for human dignity, there's no such thing as an unlikely ally. Um, tell, tell me about some of your unlikely allies. Well, we really do believe that when it comes to care, that each of us has a stake in it. And, you know, um, and it's a profound and fundamental stake. And we believe in starting from the places where all of our interests really come together. And so it's everyone from um, the Alzheimer's Association and um, you know, the National Council on Aging to um, companies that we've worked with in the past, like Care.com and others who, that we're all concerned with how do we make these caregiving relationships more visible and more valued? And, and it's sometimes the most people that you wouldn't necessarily, I mean, those are more obvious, mm -hmm. but um, I would say that, you know, f for sure, like men have come forward in really profound ways and been really powerful spokespeople for us. Um, physicians who feel like the best way to get to um, preventative, a culture of preventative care in this country is investing in good caregiving, mm -hmm. right? That there's so many different entry points and I don't really think that there's anybody who's unlikely. Mm -hmm. um, if I ask you just kind of this week, um, right now in your life and your work, um, as you look around the world, um, what makes you despair and where are you finding hope? What makes me despair is when I think about how, how many cards are stacked against us um, because um, for so long, um, rules have been adjusted to maintain and concentrate power in the hands. With excluding domestic, with domestic workers in particular? Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that it is a huge amount of um, cultural, written and unwritten rules that have disempowered domestic workers, and so many other people. Um, it's quite profound. Uh, it's cultural, it's legal, it's, it's all these things, it's programmatic. And what gives me hope is that I've actually seen time and time again through organizing and coming together and telling our stories and doing the work, um, we have made the impossible possible over and over again. And I know, I believe that we will win. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Ai-jen-pu, um, thank you so much for the work you do and for, for being with me tonight. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for having me.